From the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin, welcome to an episode of Policy in Pieces. I'm your host, Scott Bogus. Enforcement is typically viewed as bipartisan. The vast majority of actions, and, and by vast majority, I would guess more than 90%, and maybe more than 95%, although I'm not certain of that, are, are supported by all five commissioners. That's Stephanie Avakian. She's the recently departed director of enforcement at the SEC. We asked her to explain how the organization brings legal actions against those alleged to have engaged in market misconduct. We talked to her about how fraud is discovered, investigated, and actions ultimately decided, including the process of taking them to the five SEC commissioners for approval. We also discussed how this process is changing under the new administration. Previously acting Chair Lee, she increased delegation of authority to staff to pursue potential actions, signaled a change in the willingness to settle those actions, and created a climate and ESG task force which, as a sign of how important this might be, is being staffed at a rate that is comparable in size to the agency's cyber task force. We recorded this episode right before Gary Gensler was confirmed as SEC chair, and throughout the episode, you may notice that, at times, Stephanie mixes her pronouns, sometimes using we instead of they. She hasn't been gone long, and, well, it takes time for vocabulary to adjust. My co-host today is McCombs MBA student, Colton Smith. Stephanie, hello. Hi. Hi, Stephanie. Thanks for coming. Happy to be here. That was Colton, our MBA student co-host. Stephanie, we're really glad to have you on the episode. Got a bunch of questions planned for you, and I understand that you're between jobs right now. Is it safe to say you're unemployed? I am unemployed right now. I have taken my next job and um, I'll be going to Wilmer Cutler Pickering Hale and Door, and, uh, but not until July. Not until July. So you have, you have a little bit of time to catch up on your, your reading, more than just summer reading. That's right. That's right. It's not particularly intellectual reading, but I'm catching up on it. So we've known each other for a number of years. We met at the SEC. Do you remember when we met? I'm not sure I could pinpoint the exact meeting, but I'm pretty sure I can. Uh, was it during a deputy's lunch? Yes. <laughs> it was. Those were good times. That's back when there was a deputy's lunch. <laughs> That's right. A former deputy um, who has since departed the SEC uh, formed a lunch thinking that, particularly during times of leadership transition, the deputies ought to get together because they're permanent staff and they stay on and should be a cohesive group. And there were about eight or so at the time, and uh, that's where we met. Of course, you went on to become the most powerful civil enforcement attorney, the director of the enforcement division at the SEC. Uh, I'm now a college professor, but I'm employed. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And your job is easier. (laughs) My job is easier. I I have a good job. It's nice to be a university professor. So to get started... Uh, we're hoping you could just explain, particularly to someone who doesn't know anything about the SEC, maybe a three-sentence explanation to describe the Division of Enforcement. What does it do? So might be a couple more than three sentences, but not much more. I mean, if you take a step back, just sort of speaking very broadly, the SEC regulates the U.S. securities markets. So think about trading of securities in the markets, the buying and selling of the securities of public companies like Apple, like Facebook, you know, household names. At the most basic level, the securities laws are grounded in two big picture ideas. The first is that public companies have to tell the truth about their business, about the risks to their business, about their securities. And the second is that people who buy and sell securities have to deal fairly and honestly. They can't engage in fraud or manipulation or deception. And if you violate these laws, that's where the enforcement division comes in. And the enforcement division investigates and prosecutes civil violations of the federal securities laws. The division has roughly 1,400 or so professionals that are spread out across 12 offices. The division recommends and the commission brings hundreds of enforcement actions every year. Um, The commission obtains billions of dollars in remedies. They obtain other remedies like barring professionals from being employed in the securities business. Commission returns billions of dollars to investors every, you know, more than a billion in some years and and billions over years. 
And the SEC staff works with criminal authorities because, you know, people do, uh, the criminal authorities do prosecute and people go to jail for violations of these laws. So that's big picture what the SEC does, you know, what the enforcement division within the SEC does. Can you explain what the process is for bringing an enforcement action? Sure. So the SEC staff in the Division of Enforcement investigates potential violations of the federal securities laws, and they investigate using fairly, you know, traditional and well-known investigative techniques like bringing people in for investigative testimony, fact witnesses, that sort of thing, gathering facts through interviews, and also by obtaining documents. And they can do this, both of these things on a voluntary basis or via subpoena. But they take all that information and evaluate it to determine whether there's been a violation of the federal securities laws. If the staff believes there has, they'll develop a recommendation for an action. You know, we believe the commission should charge company X with these violations or these individuals with these violations, like insider trading or things like that. In most cases, the staff will try to resolve those those actions such that the staff is filing, you know, the commission is filing a settled action ultimately, but but resolutions aren't always possible. But once that investigative process is complete and there have been or have not been settlement negotiations or settlement agreement reached, the SEC staff will then make a recommendation to the commission. So the Securities and Exchange Commission is five members, you know, all of whom are nominated and by the president and confirmed by the Senate. And the commission, a majority of the commissioners have to approve any action that the staff brings. And so that's the process. Once the commission has evaluated the potential action, has voted on it, and has approved it, it'll get filed. And it either gets filed in federal district court or in the SEC's own administrative forum. How many concurrent actions and investigations are there at any point in time? So it changes year over year, but I would say roughly 1,500 open investigations in a given year. You know, it could be 1,600, it could be 1,400, but I'd say roughly that's about where it is. And there are probably several hundred open litigations at any given time. So so keep in mind, the staff is doing both those things, both investigating potential violations, but also there are staff who are in court litigating these actions. So it's a, it's a healthy docket. That's a lot of activity and actions. Where do they come from? How do, how do you start them? They come from all sorts of places. So, you know, look, they could come from the news. They can come from initiatives that the SEC staff has set up from, you know, they think if the staff believes there's been, you know, a violation that may be occurring at a number of companies or a number of firms, they may do a sweep and send lots of requests out to lots of companies and see um, see if they're finding violations could be from a whistleblower. So the SEC gets a lot of whistleblower tips in a given year. I think I haven't looked at these numbers now. I've been gone a few months, but it's I think in 2020, um, the SEC got around 5,000 whistleblower tips and and takes in, you know, on average, probably 20,000 tips, complaints and referrals every year. I would say the 5,000 I mentioned for the whistleblower is a subset of that. Self-report. Companies do come in and self-report misconduct when they identify it. And market events, right? Like, you know, I'm sure, and we'll probably get to this, but when exciting things happen in the market, like the GameStop events and other things, I fully expect that the SEC staff is, you know, is looking at it. So if if I heard you correctly, you said that there are 20,000 tips that come in every year. Yeah, that's about right. I mean, it's it, probably two years ago, three years ago, I would have said 17,000, 18,000. Last year, in the year of the pandemic, fiscal 2020, prob- more than 20,000. I don't remember exactly what the number was, but but it's a huge number. So what are the, how do you sift through it and what are the best sources of the tips that you come, that come in? So there's a, a whole organization set up within the enforcement division to take in those tips and to have a process for evaluating them and referring ones that look like potential securities violations inside the SEC's Division of Enforcement, but also many are referred out to other agencies as appropriate, to state regulators as appropriate, to criminal authorities as appropriate. So it's it's a really, um, it's a robust process that the Division of Enforcement has. There was a second part of your question, Scott, but I forget what it was. How do you, do you have any process to 
analyze what the best tips are? Do you have any retrospective review and saying this is what worked and we're going to do more of it? I, I would say it's anecdotal. I would say the the tips tips is not the right word. The source of potential investigations that probably was you know had the greatest likelihood of turning into an actual enforcement action are probably the referrals that the Division of Enforcement received from the Division of Examinations. And so the Division of Examinations is responsible for, you know, for going into registered entities like broker-dealers and investment advisors and conducting periodic exams. And there are deficiencies and potential violations that come out of that process, some of which get referred to enforcement staff for further investigation. I'd say that's probably the most reliable source, actually. I should have mentioned that earlier. It's probably the most reliable source of actual violations. That's good news in terms of investment advisors and broker dealers that the best tips come from the SEC itself. Let let me ask you a question about whistleblowers. That was a big Dodd-Frank Act rulemaking meant to create incentives for people to report. Are whistleblower tips exceptionally good? Is that why we see these massive settlements or massive payouts to whistleblowers that the SEC announces all the time? Yeah, some of them are great. I mean, they're obviously, look, if the SEC got 5,000 last year, you know, obviously there are a large number of them that don't necessarily turn into an enforcement action. But those that do are incredibly high quality. And and you can see it from the whistleblower awards that the SEC announces. You're right. I mean, the program's awarded. I mean, now I think, I, I don't know today's number, but I would guess it to be around three quarters of a billion dollars to to whistleblowers since the program's inception in 2011. What was it like to operate during the pandemic? Uh, did it affect the number or types of enforcement actions taken? I mean, it was it was a real challenge, right? And and everybody faced this challenge, everyone across the world. And and I, I think operating during the pandemic, I, I view it sort of now on a spectrum with the benefit of hindsight. The early months were really spent sort of figuring out how long is this going to go on and, you know, should we be changing practice? Should we not be changing practice, right? Everybody sort of thought, well, let's push our meetings off for a month. Let's push them off for two months. The world will come back to normal. So there was there was certainly a drop in number of cases that were brought in 2020 as compared to earlier years, right? There was a substantial number brought. When you look at it, you know, it's sort of almost amazing how many actions the SEC managed to file during the pandemic. But there was a drop, and and I attribute that in large part to, you know, a slowdown in in activity, not just at the SEC, but across the industry, right? I mean, it's not like people were sitting inside broker-dealers or companies prepared to produce documents to the SEC in March and April of 2020. So it definitely affected it in the early days. I'd say the other way it affected the SEC was sort of the types of actions, no doubt the commission continued to bring the bread and butter cases, right? There were tons of financial fraud, tons of insider trading, all those things. But inside the enforcement division, there was a pivot among a group of people who were created to, you know, create a coronavirus steering task force or committee, I think we called it, and who were responsible for really sitting back and saying, okay, what are the what are the inherent risks to the market? What are the the COVID-specific risks that investors may be facing? And how do we really pivot and focus on them? And you can see that the commission in those early months of the pandemic filed dozens of trading suspensions, ordered dozens of trading suspensions, for example, and almost all of which are companies that were making questionable claims about their ability to deal with a COVID specific issue. So whether it was we have this great company that's, you know, got a contract to get all this PPE, or we've got, you know, we've created thermometers that can take the temperature of every person in a room of thousands and, and you know, identify who has a fever, like all kinds of stuff. People were selling securities on the back of claims like this. And, and the SEC did file a bunch of fraud actions too, but you see that pivot early in the pandemic. And then subsequently, you know, there, there's been at least, you know, one disclosure-based non-fraud case. There have been a couple of other COVID-specific type cases, and I suspect we may see more as time goes on. I don't know, but you know, you can, when you look at other market crises or market dislocation events over time, cases do come out on the back of that, right, over time, either because someone made a misleading disclosure, failed to make a disclosure, or a circumstance of market dislocation 
identified or allowed problems to flow up that might not have otherwise flowed up to the surface. So the SEC pivoted. It addressed the fraud like it does many other market events that it's experienced during the past. I'm wondering if you can point to any potential positive externalities from COVID. A lot of business businesses now are saying, geez, but for the pandemic, we would not have discovered this great new way of doing something. Did the enforcement division discover any great new way of doing something because of the pandemic and therefore will be long lasting and permanent? I think that is a great question. And I, I think so. And I hope so. I mean, you know, I'm obviously not there, but I do think I, I think there are some things that will go away, right? So taking testimony of witnesses remotely is not ideal, right? It's much more ideal to sit in a room with someone and look them in the eye. I would I would not expect those sorts of things to have long-lasting effects, but I, I do think, number one, I, I saw a huge shift to people moving from conference calls to video calls, even, you know, internally, I mean, Whereas I might have done, you know, 90% of my conversations with staff from across the country by phone, it all switched to video. And I actually think that is a much better way to manage remotely. And it's a much better way to stay connected remotely. People have to pay attention when they're looking at you, right? You can't multitask. I mean, some people do, but you can't really multitask. Um, you have to be engaged. And I I'm think it makes right a difference. <laughs> I think it makes a difference. I am hopeful that a lot of stuff that required us all to travel historically will change over time and there will be a lot less sort of travel across the country for a single one hour meeting. I don't know. But I, I do think the SEC staff certainly had to go much more electronic in a lot of ways. I mean, had to find new ways to send subpoenas, had to find new ways to do all sorts of things. And I, I would expect a lot of that stuff to stay. And, and that's a good thing. Well, that's interesting. I didn't think about this, but uh, how many regional offices are there at the SEC? 11 regional offices plus the, the home office in Washington. So it, it would have been beneficial to have all this virtual technology before the pandemic to manage. And you're saying is that forced the commission wholesale to learn how to video conference and do more sophisticated communication styles. And that will be a long-term benefit. It really will. I mean, and we were lucky that the infrastructure already existed. It really did. And so it was pretty seamless. I just think what it ended up doing was forcing people out of their comfort zones of sitting on the telephone and looking at each other. So let's pivot. You had mentioned there are five commissioners who are all voting on these actions. Does that affect which actions you pursue or bring up to them, knowing what, how they might vote? Do you aim to get unanimity? Or are you just trying to get three votes? Like, What's the process of selecting actions to take to them, given that they may all have different opinions? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It, it's a very interesting issue. I mean, obviously, an action has to be approved by a majority of commissioners in order to move forward. So, of course, that's always an animating, you know, factor. We're always thinking about that. I would say, you know, enforcement is typically viewed as bipartisan. And so if you do take a step back, the vast majority of enforcement actions are approved by all five commissioners. Now, there may be a little bit, you know, here or there where one commissioner doesn't like one small piece of the action. But the vast majority of actions, and, and by vast majority, I would guess more than 90% and maybe more than 95%, although I'm not certain of that, are, are supported by all five commissioners. And so you're really talking about a potentially small number of cases where thinking about is the commission going to, is the commission going to approve this is really sort of a question. And there you're, you are, in my view, you should always be striving for unanimity. I, I think it is important that each commissioner has a voice, that each commissioner feels like they have a voice, and, and that we're taking into account in the enforcement division what it is our client views as important. But there are cases, you know, that are that are approved on a 3-2 vote. It happens. I will say the guidance that, you know, that I gave to the staff, and I think this is how the staff generally thinks about it, is our job is to investigate the facts and to put together what we think is the right recommendation. It's not to try to, we need to appease this commissioner, we need to appease this commissioner. It's really, 
this is what we think the right thing to do is. This is why we think the right thing to do is this. Let's go present it and make our best arguments. And that carries the day most of the time. What's a Wells notice and why is it important? So Wells notice, and I alluded to this a little bit earlier, a Wells notice is when the staff has made the determination that it is going to make a recommendation to the commission and it provides notice to the party about whom it is going to make the recommendation and provides them an opportunity to tell their side of the story, make a submission telling your side of the story. And that's incredibly valuable. It's valuable to the process. It's valuable to the decision makers on the staff. And I think it's very valuable to the commissioners. And that can take the form of, it almost always takes a written form, but oftentimes counsel for potential defendants will ask for a meeting with the supervisors on the case or as high up as the front office, you know, as the director. And certainly my view is more process is better than less and they can make a difference. As I understand it, the recipient has 30 days to reply. Does anyone ever not reply? And if so, why? I actually think they have 14 days to reply, but I wouldn't swear to that. Um, within the guidance, right? It's not a requirement that the SEC give a Wells notice. It's, you know, in most circumstances, that should be what the staff does. I think it's 14 days, but it's almost always extended by request. And, and to get to the substance of your actual question, do they submit it? And most do. The vast majority of people will make a well submission. Some may not. Um, some may not because they just don't care. They're going to default. They just, they're disappearing. They're never showing up. So that happens. Some may have, there may be a parallel criminal investigation and it just, given the potential for criminal charges, some people decide to just hunker down and not put in a written submission and, and maybe they come in and ask for a meeting instead. And some strategically, you know, think there's value in, in not providing a response. So we do see that. But I would say the large majority of people probably make some sort of submission or at least ask for a meeting. How often do these uh, submissions or meetings change your mind or alter the SEC's course of action? I think the answer to that is probably more often than folks might think. They really can make a difference. Now, they can have the effect of making me or others very confident in the course we've taken, right? I mean, it can leave you feeling like, yeah, no, we're right about this. But I would say it falls on a spectrum. No doubt it has resulted in the closure of cases over time, and, and that's, that's to be expected. I would say more often than not, those meetings can result in a resolution because they really can be a good opportunity for both sides to see how far apart they are and think about, where, where do we agree and where do we disagree? And that's what I find to be the greatest benefit of those meetings is finding those points of agreement and disagreement. And if you can narrow them down, that could have a variety of results. One is you may be able to resolve, right? Because you figure out where your differences are and, and what each side can live with. And so you may be able to resolve. You figure out where, where folks line in the sand are on both sides of the table. I think, you know, certainly the staff will try to communicate that. And I think the defense bar tries to communicate. This is the thing I can never agree to or I can never walk away from. And you also might be able to sort of agree that there's a violation, but it's not this other, you know, it's not this thing. It's this other thing, right? And so, you know, my own view is the meetings can be incredibly beneficial if both sides use them in a way that's, you know, intended to ferret out where are the areas of disagreement, where are the areas of agreement, and how can we move forward? So these are high stakes meetings. And for the attorneys on both sides, I'm guessing they're rather rare events. You don't walk into, you know, Wells meetings all the time. I mean, there's a lot of Wells meetings, but not with the same parties in them. I mean, does that create any special environment? Do people melt down or freak out or... I mean, how do they go? Is there anything interesting about them, you know, contextually that you want to share? I, I think that most of, them, most of them go pretty well. Most of the players in the defense bar are repeat players in front of the SEC and sort of know how to do these meetings. I mean, there have definitely been some where people come in and, and just accuse the staff of misconduct and all sorts of stuff. And when somebody, you know, when people come in spoiling for a fight with the staff, it's not really effective use of anyone's time. And I find those to be particularly ineffective, ineffective, I guess is the right word. But there are plenty where people have come in 
and treated them like they're making an opening or closing argument to a jury. And that can be very effective because it takes you, sort of makes you step back and say, okay, if this thing goes to litigation, I've now just heard their best argument. What is my response? And that gives a really good point of discussion, you know, for me to have with the staff after after those people leave the meeting. Let's unpack that. So let's assume you have a meeting, you heard their best argument, it was like a moot court, and you go back to your staff and you're thinking in your mind, there's no way we should be moving forward. And I want you to answer in t- from two perspectives. One, there are thousands of actions that are coming up. They're being developed presumably before you even hear them and they're, they're somewhat baked before they get to you, confirm whether that's true or not. And then assume you go into this meeting and you think the other side's a better argument. How do you communicate it to staff and, and how do you kill an action if you think that's what's supposed to be done? I think that's the hardest part. That That is probably the hardest part of the job, right? Because one, you have to be certain in that, that, that that's the right call. But I think, you know, to say kill an action sort of makes it sound like, you know, I could take a sledgehammer to it. I think it really in those circumstances where you walk out thinking, this doesn't feel right, or this feels like we have the losing end of this. That's a very frank conversation with the staff. And oftentimes it is, you know, it's a, it's an ongoing dialogue. It's really, look, they made these arguments. Help me understand what our response is, because we may have a really good one, or we may need to go out and develop a really good one that may be there. But it may also be that the trial lawyers on the case or the senior lawyers or the junior lawyers on the case sort of step back and say, those are hard arguments. And I think if we go to litigation, we, you know, we may have a real problem here. So I think to the extent that the Wells process or any dialogue, it doesn't have to be at the Wells stage, results in decisions to close, those really are thoughtful decisions that are made by consensus. And so are there any ambiguous situations where you're just not sure and then it just increases the likelihood you settle just to end it, uh, not kill it, but not press forward? I think when you're really not sure what the right answer is, the right answer is probably not to bring the case, right? But those circumstances of really not sure, that's pretty rare. Like you have a pretty good sense of what's going on, whether something rises to the level of a violation. And those are, you know, there, there's no doubt there are some close calls and they can shake out on either side of the ledger. But Again, lots of discussion and, you know, we figure out what the right result was. So you mentioned that staff is supposed to be nonpartisan when it brings its action. And so let me ask you the question, are staff nonpartisan? Can you tell if they're not? How do you know? And even if they are partisan, does it really matter? I mean, I, whether staff are partisan is really nothing I've ever witnessed. You know, I, I didn't see it in conversation or in acts. And I don't think the staff is partisan. I really do believe that the staff of the enforcement division is focused on, you know, doing the right thing, ferreting out violations of the federal securities laws. Certainly some people are tougher than others, right? I mean, we all know that. There are some, you know, folks who are going to go for harsher sanctions, some folks who are are going to, you know, view the potential results differently than others. People are different. That's the, you know, that's that's the industry that we're in. You know, it's not just at the SEC, it's everywhere. People are different. But I don't think any of that is driven by partisan concerns. I've never seen it in the staff of the enforcement division and I've never I've never believed it to be there. Commissioner Crenshaw recently gave a speech, Enforcement for All, And it really touches on a couple of issues, one which is well-known and one which is somewhat new. And the well-known one is this idea of individuals versus entities and whether you should focus penalties on the level of shareholder benefit or harm. And I want to get your views on that particular aspect of her speech. Do Do you think it's partisan issue on penalties? And if so, like, what are your thoughts? Well, I think this question about, you know, how, was there a, and, and I tell me if I'm getting the question wrong, but I think it's, you know, was there a benefit to the corporation? And if not, there shouldn't be a penalty against the corporation. And if there was, the penalty should be limited to the amount by which the corporation benefited because the shareholders are the ultimate payers of this penalty. That, that's the general notion. I do think that probably 
typically we've seen it break down on, on partisan lines among the commissioners. And it really goes back to the commission's statement on corporate penalties. I think it was 2006, the commission put out a letter or a statement, I should say, that identified a variety of factors that should be considered when determining whether to penalize a public company. And one of the factors was the degree to which there was a benefit to that company by the underlying conduct. And that is an issue that is important to some commissioners and an issue that is not important to other commissioners. And the commissioners have, I think, almost all of them have spoken publicly at one point or another, both past and present, on these issues. Did you have a view on punishing individuals versus corporation, or did you just leave that to the commission? And I most definitely have a view. The vast majority of cases brought by the SEC had charges against individuals. And so, and I'd say over time, roughly 70 to 75% of cases filed by the commission had charges against individuals. So that's a, that's the vast majority. I don't know if you economists would say 75% is a vast majority, but I do. And so, you know, so, so that's your starting point. Now, there are cases that are brought against corporations only, right, and not individuals. And the reason the individual piece is important is I, I do believe that bringing cases against individuals is the single greatest form of deterrence, right? That is the single greatest form of deterrence is personal accountability. Now, should there be cases against companies without individuals? Well, that, that happens, right? I mean, it just does. There is not always somebody who has liability in a legal sense, in a legal sense of the word, you know, in a case. Believe me, if there is an individual who is liable, the SEC is going to bring that case. They're not not bringing those cases. And if you look at financial fraud cases, for example, the majority of them have C-suite, you know, executives named in those cases. Not all of them, but many of them do. But there are plenty of disclosure cases, for example, where a company, you know, makes a misleading disclosure or, you know, has a material omission. And there's not an individual in that company who has both the knowledge of the factual misstatement and the obligation to make the disclosure. And if you don't have those things coming together in a person, there's simply not a person, you know, against whom to bring charges. Now, that said, should the company not face an action? I mean, there's sort of two questions here. One is, should you bring, be bringing actions against companies only? And I think where that's appropriate and you don't have individual liability, you should be, should be. And the other question is more broad, which is, should there be penalties against public companies? Is this issue, this purportedly partisan issue, overblown with respect to the type of cases brought and just really limited to the penalties that are assessed? I think so. I, I think it's an. I think it's overblown in a couple ways. One, people think of it as a partisan issue, right? They think of it as well. Republicans don't want to have penalties against public companies unless there's a corporate benefit, and Democrats want to bring penalties against everybody, right? This is the. That's the sort of backdrop against which people are sort of operating the way the way people are thinking about it, and and I don't think that's fair. There are plenty of large penalty cases that Republican commissioners have voted for. There just are. And so that is an issue that many, you know, that, that commissioners focus on. Like I said, it's in the 2006 statement. It's more important to some people than others. Some people think it should always be considered. Some people think it should never be considered. In the enforcement division, it's sort of like what I said before, I viewed our job as figuring out what is the right result. What is the right result based on, you know, precedent, underlying conduct, all the things you think about, deterrence, all the things you think about in assessing the penalty. And let's make that recommendation to the commission. So I, I think it's overblown in that I don't actually think the corporate benefit idea is driving the enforcement division. I don't think it's driving the recommendation. It is a factor, but it is not what's driving the recommendation. And Commissioner Crenshaw's enforcement for all speech, he also brought up Another argument, and that is the commission should be tying penalties to the amount of effort required to find the illicit or inappropriate activity. Is that novel and is it right? Um, don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess I'd argue that to some degree that's probably already animating the penalty, right? I mean, for long running, well hidden, fraudulent conduct, the penalty is reflective of that, right? For for very, 
I don't know if tricky is the right word, but but very hard to find fraud, you know, something buried deep in the financial statements. I think the penalties typically reflect that. Are you familiar with the recently announced climate task force and enforcement? I mean, as familiar as you are, presumably, right? I mean, I read about it in the uh, I read about it in the press. So uh, do you think investigations from this task force are likely to lead to anything or is this just a warning shot across the bow to companies that more is coming into the policy arena? I don't know. I'm actually interested to watch this and see. I, I certainly think it's a shot across the bow, right? It's certainly a message. And based on what I read, you know, in the press release, it's a large group. I mean, it's if I remember correctly, it's almost three dozen people from the enforcement division. And that's a really substantial number of people. I mean, if you think about, you know, the specialized units, for example, the cyber unit, I'd say that's probably fairly comparable in size. And if you think about other task forces that have been set up in the past, like the Retail Strategy Task Force, there have been others, they're substantially smaller, you know, maybe a dozen, maybe fewer, maybe a little more people. So it is scaled up um, in terms of the number, which I think is a message. And, you know, whether it leads to anything, hard for me to say, right? I mean, there's not a lot of specific disclosure guidance out there on this. I mean, the, the commission has put out, or maybe the staff's put out some guidance on this issue, but there's not required disclosure. And we've seen suggestions that that's being considered in the policy realm, right? But, you know, so I, I think those are tough. Those are likely to be very tough cases to bring if we're, you know, if we're thinking about, you know, non-disclosure. Now, I think if you've got misstatements, if you find misstatements out there, that's probably a much easier case to bring. And then I think, I assume they're going to be, and I, I, I haven't seen the press release since it came out, so I don't really remember, but I assume part of what they'll look at is, look, there are a lot of funds and other investment vehicles out there that claim to be ESG in nature, right? They claim to be making ESG investments. I assume they're going in and looking at all those. Anybody who's purporting to, you know, do a certain thing, to be ESG, to whatever, whatever they're saying they're going to do. I assume the SEC is going to go in there and look and see, are you actually doing the thing you said you're going to do? And if you're not, I'd expect to see cases. A couple more developments that have occurred uh, since you left. One is on joint settlements on waivers and the other is on delegated authorities. So let's start with joint settlements and waivers. Like, What is that? Why is it important? Is this a big deal? Settlements with the SEC, you know, by individuals as well, but this comes up with with entities, financial institutions primarily, can trigger certain disqualifications. So if a financial institution settles to, say, some sort of fraud action, they may be disqualified from doing certain sorts of private placement business, which can be a really big deal for, a, you know, international financial institution. The commission can waive those disqualifications, and typically when a party settles, they'll seek a waiver from the disqualification. In the last administration, what Chairman Clayton did was put out, um, and I should, I should stop and say, the commission votes on each of these issues separately. So the commission considers and votes on the enforcement recommendation and the settlement, and then also considers the policy division's recommendation about whether a disqualification should be waived, and then votes on that. And so, you know, the big fear from the from companies and the defense bar was we're going to end up with an approved settlement for this fraud case, but then we're going to get denied on the waiver and we're going to be out of, you know, this, you know, our, our desk that does private placements that makes us, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year is going to be out of business. And that made settling those cases with the unknown out there incredibly difficult. And there's no doubt the enforcement division got those settlements but they took a very long time. And so what Chairman Clayton did was put out a statement that basically said that companies that were settling with the SEC and also seeking a waiver could ask that the waiver application and the settlement be considered together and that if the waiver is denied, the company would be given a certain amount of time, typically a day or two, I think less than three days, in order to determine whether it wanted to continue to go forward with the settlement. And also specifically said that if a company determined not to move forward with its settlement, litigation was probably imminent. What's so controversial about that? Nothing in my mind, because the commission is still considering each of those things on their own independent merits, right? So when Chairman Clayton put that statement out, it didn't change the process at all, 
the policy division that's, you know, the appropriate policy division, whether it was the Division of Investment Management, Corp Fin, whoever it was, reviewed the facts, made a recommendation as to whether a waiver was appropriate or not, and made that recommendation to the commission, separate and apart from the Enforcement Division recommendation. And it remained that way during, you know, it was before and it was after Chairman Clayton's, Chairman Clayton's statement. Since January, since the change in administration, the commission's current acting chairman has rescinded Chairman Clayton's statement, going back to the way things have done, been done before, meaning companies cannot ask for joint consideration of those two issues and, and those couple days in order to consider whether they wanted to continue to move forward. I mean, it's been, I've seen the press around this suggest or portray this as a return to the separation of the enforcement and the waiver consideration process. But those two processes have always been separated. So I've, I've been hogging the mic and I know that my co-host has some questions burning inside of him. But before I give it back, I just wanted to ask you about delegated authority. You know, the acting chair made a big deal about restoring delegated authority to the Division of Enforcement. Uh, the senior officers there to allow them to approve the issuance of a formal order of investigation. Can you just explain what that means in plain English and why that's important? Sure. So we're talking about formal order authority, formal order of an, the authority to enter into a formal order of investigation. That is necessary in order for the staff to issue subpoenas. So you need a formal order in a case in order for a subpoena to be issued. The formal order has to be authorized by the commission. The commission several years ago, more than 10, and maybe 15 at this point, delegated that authority to the director of enforcement and also previously subdelegated that authority to certain senior officers in the enforcement division so they could enter into formal orders. In 2017, the acting chairman at that time rescinded the subdelegation and pulled it up so that only the enforcement director could sign formal order of authority. And it remained that way until January or February or so recently when the current acting chair put the subdelegation back in so that senior officers across the division could now you know, sign formal orders. What does this mean? Practically speaking, the change is rather than one or two people having the delegation to authorize the formal orders, you now have roughly 30 or so people across the division able to do it. And so to me, the key issue here is that the enforcement division has the delegated authority, right? It's really, if, if all the delegated authority was pulled back up to the commission, I think that would slow the process exponentially. Having the delegated authority with the enforcement division is the meaningful issue. But I have to believe that from a morale perspective, you know, at least for those senior officers, it was probably meaningful. But I don't think it changes anything in terms of, you know, the, the speed with which an investigation is going to move forward or, you know, anything like that. Can you talk about uh, some of the most notable cases you brought? Which, which were the most controversial or interesting or just downright difficult? Some of the most notable ones are, are the biggest names probably we've seen, right? The action the SEC brought against Tesla and Elon Musk, uh, you know, was obviously notable. I think the action against Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes was notable. There are lots of other ones, but, but certainly I'd put them at the top of, of any list of uh, notable cases. Lots of cases are difficult for lots of different reasons, right? The ones you've never heard of may have been among the most difficult for, for any number of reasons, either because legal issues were tricky or because, you know, counsel was particularly aggressive or because, you know, because the litigation was fast moving. I mean, there could be any number of reasons. That's, so there's a lot of stuff I put in the camp of important or difficult or things like that. Were you ever concerned about another Bernie Madoff incident occurring on your watch? I mean, you're always worried about that, right? That's all. It's always the worry of what don't I know? What's going on out there that I don't know? And and you know, we focused on that in in we talked about the tips, complaints, and referral system earlier. I mean, we we focused on it that way, right? You've got to have a process in place for stuff to come in the door and for it to be handled appropriately. And you know, that was a process I spent a lot of time on. Scott and I together, when Scott was there, spent a lot of time on it, um, on developing a system. And 
And I think that's how, that's your greatest protection against finding yourself in that kind of a circumstance. Can you explain how the SEC views Bitcoin in the context of whether it's a security? I mean, I can't really speak for the commission. What I can say is, you know, I think a year or two ago, maybe three years ago, then director of Corp Finn, Bill Hinman, gave a speech where I think he said that, you know, as it currently exists, Bitcoin does not appear to be a security. You know, I obviously can't can't speak for the commission more broadly on that one. So let's go back to 2017, or maybe it was 2018. Uh, you presided over 21A report on something called the Dow token, which was alleged to have violated federal securities laws in what is now called, I guess, an initial coin offering. Do you remember that report? Do you remember the when it was first created, what your impressions were at the time of the financial innovation and how that might unravel? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, the report was obviously a big deal in just putting out there and reiterating the law in the space and, and specifically applying it to, right, it took longstanding securities law, federal securities law, and applied it to this new paradigm, this this token, this blockchain technology, and, and said, look, you got to look at the at the substance of a transaction. You've got to look at the substance of what's going on here. You can call it anything you want, but if it's a security, it needs to be regulated like a security. So it, this was a a token that was issued and capital raised, and at the time you or the division or the SEC viewed that as an unregistered offering, but you didn't take an enforcement action. You you issued a twenty one A report. Can you describe? what a 21A report is and why you took that course? Sure. A 21A report is a commission's report of investigation. So we've done an investigation. The commission's staff has done an investigation. And there was a, we do believe there's a violation of the law, but we've decided to report it as opposed to bringing it as an enforcement action. I mean, I can't really get into why they did it in this case, you know, why they did it in any individual case, but that is a tool that the commission has. And the commission's, you know, issued a handful of 21A reports over the years, you know, probably 15 or so over the years. And my own view is it's a great way for the commission to really put its thinking out into the marketplace. Do you think this is going to change treatment of ICOs going forward. I know you didn't want to weigh in on is Bitcoin a security, but the crypto industry has been un very unhappy with uh, these developments. And at least one commissioner thinks the SEC should be more permissive in this area. Do you think there's going to be any movement in terms of how ICOs are treated going forward? I really don't know. You know, based on what I've read, the incoming chairman is you know, very much involved or has views in this space. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see some sort of move towards specific regulation, but I have no prediction on this. What was your impression about the GameStop incident and what, what could be considered or would be considered misconduct in this area, if anything? Well, I was happy I was a private citizen when it happened. Um, and uh, I, I, you know, it was fascinating to watch, but I, I, it was just fascinating. You know, in terms of what a violation might look like, I really don't know. I, I think that's really hard to say. I mean, you know, obviously we're seeing a lot about, you know, manipulation in the press and stuff, but I think that's very, that's going to be a very difficult case to put together. Now, there may be lots of facts we in the public don't know, right? If there were, you know, if you can identify one, two, three people who were really, driving behavior, making misstatements. I, I don't I really don't know. I think it's a very it's a tough manipulation case. Now there may be cases out there of uh there could be fraud cases, right? Of people out there saying that they're buying when really they're selling. There could be, you know, other types of things out there. But I, I think this is gonna be very interesting to watch unfold. And I think the SEC has come out and said they're looking at it. So it will be um you know, I'll be watching along with you guys. Having left the commission, are there any areas of enforcement that most concern you going forward? I mean, the biggest concern will be the one, you know, that that was there when I was there and it was there before me, which is just these people who are determined to separate folks from their money, right? I mean, whether it's Ponzi schemes, penny stock frauds, all these things, 
they are not going away. I was shocked. You know, I, I was at the SEC on the staff back in the 90s. When I rejoined the SEC in 2004, I could not believe how much the penny stock fraud was still there. And even more so, right? Because social media and the internet and everything changed the ability of these people. And the, the Ponzi schemes, I mean, when I was there, the commission brought the Woodbridge Ponzi case, brought the Merrill Ponzi case, brought there, there were a handful. The Woodbridge case, I think the SEC alleged it was almost a billion dollars. I mean, some of these were close to half a billion dollars. They just brought a trading suspension. I saw, not a trading suspension, an emergency action in a case a week or two ago that alleged a more than a half a billion dollar scheme. So to me, this is the greatest worry. I spent, you know, time on investor education, spent time on sort of how can we, and this was part of what the Retail Strategy Task Force did was think about how can we, you know, work with the public on financial literacy and on investor protection issues in order to, to help people protect themselves. But to me, that is the, the most troubling thing out there. So that's a, an interesting observation, maybe a good place to uh, come to a conclusion that fraud persists and it looks the same over time, no matter who is in control of the administration or the SEC. We really appreciate your time with us today and glad that you escaped your tenure without another Madoff on your watch. Thank you, me too. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed today's episode. It offers a rare glimpse into how the SEC Enforcement Division works from somebody who co-led the division for more than four years. And after reflecting on our discussion, I thought I would highlight something unique about Stephanie's ascension to the role of SEC Enforcement Director. In particular, she was brought in during the Obama administration and at that time served as the Deputy Director of the division. When the Trump-appointed chairman arrived, Jay Clayton, he asked her to stay on as co-director of the division. That was a rather remarkable development and speaks volumes of both the SEC and of Stephanie. To begin, it's evidence of how well the SEC maintained its independence during the last administration, which was so focused on replacing seasoned leadership in government. It also highlights two Stephanie traits, good judgment and great leadership, which is evident to all who have ever worked with her and unrelated to political views. Relatedly, when you hear political views about draining the swamp, I believe it to be mostly rhetoric. For my decade in government, half of which was at the senior officer rank and spanned both Republican and Democratic administrations, political views didn't get in the way of serving the public. My former colleagues, including Stephanie, they took great pride in doing what was just and reasonable, knowing that their decisions would have profound impact on both financial market participants and the welfare of American citizens. As Stephanie stated, and I agree with, partisan views and actions are predominantly at the commissioner level, which of course makes sense because they're the political appointees. Of course, staff have political views too. They vote them at the polls, just like every other American citizen, but in their day-to-day -day jobs at the SEC, they're serving the public interest. Today's episode is a production of the Salem Center for Policy, housed in the McComb School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. Our series is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The opinions expressed represent the views of the hosts and the guests, and not the University of Texas at Austin. Today's student executive producers are Abby Sawyer and Zoe Tarr of the Moody School of Communication. Mm -hmm.